1: Just go to porkbun.com forward slash fm 24 That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash fm 24 You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort join us, go to gigantic.is, that's gigantic.is, and save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. So you've seen all the hype recently about Basecamp's new book. Uh, It doesn't have to be Crazy at Work. No, 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 the other one. Ah, Shape Up? Yes, yes, that's what. Ryan Singer's manuscript on how they develop product at Basecamp.
0: Yeah, Ryan. I've gotten to know him a little bit because he's been at industry, actually the first industry that we ever had in Europe. And did you know, he's been at Basecamp for over
1: like sixteen years, I think. It's amazing, especially in this day and age.
0: Yeah, yeah. One of the first articles that I ever read by Ryan was about the vital elements of product design, and that was back in 2013. Uh, but Shape Up, it's much more thorough, and it goes into the product methodology that they actually use at Basecamp.
1: Yeah, and and in the interview. Um, Um, When I was talking to him, Ryan referenced this book, Getting Real, from 2005. And he said that kind of laid the foundation even for, for Shape Up.
0: And that really starts to explain why Shape Up has made such huge waves in the product community, because it's really the result of a product team working together for a decade and a half, refining their processes over
1: and over again. And you can still find Getting Real if you're interested. Just Google, you know, Getting Real book. Yeah, or just read Shape Up. Yeah, that works too.
0: Welcome to
1: Rocketship.fm.
0: Rocketship FM is
1: produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka, and I'm Mike Belsito. So I got a chance to sit down with Ryan last week and discuss Shape Up. And Ryan's a great guy. Uh, again,
0: I got to know him a little bit in Dublin. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was, I remember he was right in the middle of this big project that they were trying to launch at Basecamp. yet he still made time to come out and spend some time with us, um, at industry and yeah, I mean, hopefully we'll be able to have him back too. Well, he, he seemed a little upset. You didn't invite him to Cleveland this year. He, he is always invited. Actually his colleague, Jason will be with us. Uh, so yeah, Jason freed, hopefully maybe he <laughs> could come with Jason. I don't know. I, I guess I got to call him now.
1: I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So so what makes Shape Up so powerful, what makes it different than other product management books, Ryan treated the creation of this book like a product itself. Right. I mean, he could have easily recorded their product processes and just left it at that. But he didn't, he couldn't. He he threw a seminar, actually. So after he kind of knew the thesis behind the book, he threw a seminar for product managers and then interviewed them about their biggest pain points. Once he found the common threads, he then addressed them in his book. Yeah, which is brilliant. Yeah, so you might be asking, what is this shape-up process that Basecamp uses and why should I, as a product manager or product leader, why should I care?
2: So the basic idea of the book is it was actually born out of our observation that so many other software companies around us are struggling. You know, we talk to friends who work at other teams and they talk about projects that never end, feeling like uh, they're just kind of not ever getting anywhere on the product and then just kind of really having morale wear down. And we've been figuring out a better way to work for, I mean, I've been at Basecamp for 16 years now. And it started with just sort of principles that we had that were a little bit different. Um, and we first wrote about those principles in in, a, in our book called Getting Real way back in, I don't know, 2005 or something like that. And uh, we've since grown and uh, we've had to sort of formalize and, and really be able to articulate how it is that we're working um, to actually c- consistently ship and finish and be able to walk away and kind of celebrate progress on the product on a regular basis and we kind of came to a point where that was formed enough that it felt like you know what maybe maybe we're ready to actually share this now um and and it feels like the industry actually needs it more than ever you know everyone is picking up on agile at this point and it's it's pretty much status quo that people are using agile and it's just not helping it, it, it's probably actually gotten worse you know uh the, the pendulum swung a long way from The old waterfall days and it swung in the direction of you know little bites of work two weeks at a time and and but but that's turned into just kind of wandering around what does he have against agile well sort of working two weeks at a time but you're never actually finishing and arriving and, and getting somewhere
0: Okay, all right, I can understand that.
1: Yeah, same. This one really hits home, right? Two-week sprints, you run sprint after sprint, you're always leaving work unfinished at the end, and uh, that's just every product team I've ever worked with.
0: Yeah, but if I remember right, I mean Basecamp's methodology, it's different. There's six weeks of building,
1: two weeks of cooling and a lot of upfront planning. So let's start in the middle of the book and we'll work out in both directions. So the first concept that he really covers is betting, um, which is really one of the pillars of their process here. Here's Ryan.
2: Instead of using the, the language of planning, which is about certainty, you know, which is like you know the future and you know what's gonna happen, we use the language of betting, which is about risk. And what we bet is six weeks at a time, and this is what works for us at our, at our current size. And basically, we're going to say, we're going to give a project to a team, and they're going to work uninterruptedly for six weeks. They're going to create their own tasks. They're, they're going to be responsible for the, all the details of the execution. And they're going to figure out how to do it. And at the end of the six weeks, done means it's deployed. Like, they're actually going to finish that thing. And um, six weeks is enough time for, for a team to actually get something meaningful done. And but it's also more than that. we're also thinking about it in terms of not sort of how long is the project going to take, but instead of sort of estimating how long the project is going to take, we, we talk about an appetite. How much time do we actually want to spend on this thing? You know So if we come up with a project that we're, is going to take the whole six weeks, or we might come up with a smaller project that we think can be done in, in two weeks, it's a question of how much time we actually think it's worth.
0: So he discusses betting, but also appetite how much time do we want to spend on this or how much appetite for risk do we have for this? It's an interesting way to flip estimates on their heads. Yeah, I mean, people are
1: notoriously bad at estimating.
0: And we're also notoriously bad at betting
1: too. you're not wrong. <laughs> I used to live in Vegas and I can tell you those casinos are not built on people's winnings. No, but I get his point And I really like the pressure it
0: takes off of product teams to do the estimating, which is always wrong in one direction or the other. And it puts it on the leadership team to determine how much time a solution is actually worth. It helps make a more informed decision and a better decision for the business. Ryan expanded on this
2: idea a bit more as well. If If anything takes longer than the amount of time the amount of of appetite that we define for it then yeah. something is wrong and in, instead of automatically reinvesting the default is that we're going to say something is wrong with this and we're going to all assume that it's not going to happen and and in practice this happens actually very very rarely you know because the thing is if you have the attitude that if this doesn't work, it might never happen again. This is sort of our chance, you know? Then you take betting more seriously. And if you're taking, if you're taking betting more seriously, you're going to have to take shaping more seriously because shaping is how you improve your odds.
0: Wow. So if they don't finish the work after six weeks or whatever time they bet on it, they stop working on it and it
1: just goes back into the backlog? I mean, almost, except there's no backlog. It just sits there until someone else wants to champion it. And at the end there, he mentioned shaping. Yeah, well, we might as well go there now. I mean, it's only the name of the book, so I assume (laughs) it's important. (laughs) It plays a small role. (laughs) No, just
0: kidding.
2: Here's Ryan. So to get to the point where we actually have some work that we can give to a team, and we can be really confident that they're actually gonna completely finish and and solve and and figure out and and deploy that project in that period of time, we have this process that we call shaping. And shaping is the pre-work that we do on the work before it's kind of qualified or or ready to bet on, before it's ready to, to, to commit to and give over to a team and trust that it's gonna work. Very often, people define projects either They kind of underspecify the work where it's it's like let's go build a calendar right and how do you know what build a calendar means Uh, there's a hundred features that go into a calendar and which which tenth of a calendar are you going to build so that you're actually making progress you know you could build the ultimate um schedule aligner for finding out when two people's schedules overlap sort of like a doodle kind of thing you could go down that road for months and build the ultimate version of that or you could build the new ultimate uh, drag and drop interface, uh, native iPhone app, you know, for dragging events between calendar cells or something like that, you know. So, uh, so we don't want if we underspecify it, then we, the team doesn't have enough direction, and and it's certain that that they won't finish. On the other hand, if we overspecify the project and we're too detailed, you know, we can't actually plan all of the tasks in advance. So in the book, we talk about the difference between imagined tasks and discovered tasks. There's a huge difference between the things that you think you have to do going into a project, and then you actually get your hands dirty, you lift the hood, and you get in there, and you discover, oh, this is connected to that, and it's not connected to that, and I have to use this API, and if I use this design, I have to move this other thing over there. Like, all of a sudden, you find out there's all kinds of work that you have to do that you didn't know you had to do going in you know. And so if we try and just plan the work down to the tiny detail in advance, that's not going to work either because in the first 30 minutes it's going to blow up and we're going to realize that the re- the real project isn't what we thought it was, you know what I mean? So the so the task when we're shaping work is to is to figure out what's worth doing, figure out what our appetite is, how much time do we want to spend on this thing, and then come up with some kind of a rough solution. And define the solution at a level of detail that's not so vague that the team doesn't know where to go, but it's also not so specific that they're getting boxed in to the wrong, to the wrong details, you know, right away from the start. And we go through some specific techniques that we use to to design at the right level of abstraction, and that that whole process is really about. Improving our odds on a potential bet. So we want to remove as much risk as we can by doing more pre-work on the idea and being more confident in the outlines of the idea so that there's some guardrails for the team and some clear boundaries for the team on what they should pursue while still still giving them a lot of latitude and freedom to actually do the creativity and do the problem solving to, to actually figure it out.
0: Okay, so we're going to be back in just a second with more about Basecamp's shape-up process. But first, let's take a quick break here for a word from our sponsors.
1: So far, we've discussed betting and shaping, but how does the full process
2: come together? So if we look at it, kind of the big arc of the thing, we're shaping work, which is kind of transforming a raw idea into something that's more bounded more actionable that has better odds of success with more risk removed and then if we shape work it doesn't automatically go into a queue or onto a onto some sort of a backlog we actually have no backlogs after we've shaped some work it becomes a potential bet something that we might do because now it's sort of qualified as an option and then we have what we call a betting table this happens in a in a two week cooldown period between our six week cycles, and in the betting table we have a few uh, of the most senior folks like Jason and David, the two partners at Basecamp, and everybody who um, uh, those of us who are doing the shaping will bring pitches, which is sort of the the presentation of a shaped piece of work. will bring pitches to the betting table, and there will only be you know three, four, five ideas on the table. And they're all very considered. They've been brought by somebody. So there's context. They're timely, you know, and they've, and they've been shaped. So instead of sort of grooming some infinite backlog of stuff that we're never going to do, that we're never going to have time for, there's a few really well-considered timely things on the table that we can look at. And then that's how we decide what goes into the next cycle.
0: Okay, this is starting to make sense. So shaping is the planning process that's done by members of the leadership team during the six weeks that the designers and
1: engineers are building. And that shaping work is then presented to the executive team and the bets are placed. You could just sort of picture Jason Freed as a crap stealer, sort of taking in the team's bets. <laughs> can you really? I mean, I can. All right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so shaping and then betting. And then building. And there's a whole section of the book that outlines some of these techniques, but my favorite is how they break down the work as a team.
2: We actually don't assign tasks to teams. We assign projects to teams. So a lot of software companies, they have what I've been calling the paper shredder. You know, you take a whole project and then somebody splits it out into a bunch of different tasks and assign those into some kind of a sprint or something. And now everybody's working on little disconnected pieces of work that hopefully are supposed to get stitched together again so that it becomes whole, you know, and, and, and it doesn't work for the same reason I mentioned before, because the real work that you discover is different than the work up front that you imagine. So instead we just give the whole thing to the team and say, look, you guys create the tasks. You, you, you can figure out what the actual things are that you have to do. Here's the boundaries of the thing. And here's the goal. And here's the overall outline of the solution. Um, and uh, and, then, and then the teams have a lot of autonomy and freedom uh, to actually work out using their expertise what the final form should be.
0: So let's talk about some of the actual techniques that they use to accomplish everything.
1: Sure. So in regards to shaping, they've moved away from wireframes and instead have abstracted it even more into something they call breadboards, which helps to define what needs to be built without boxing the solutions in for a designer or design team to work out.
2: Yeah. So the breadboard actually originated back in I think 2009. We were tackling one of our one of our most demanding projects that we had taken on so far. At that time, we had uh, four different products: Basecamp, Backpack, Hi-Rise, and Campfire. And we actually wanted to sort of unify all of them into a single username and password so people could, you know, move seamlessly between the apps and have a single account and all of that. It was a huge nightmare of a technical project, you know, because we have all these separate databases and you have to we tie them all together. And the one part of it that was really challenging was we had to um, transition all of our existing customers you know, from sort of different starting points, they might be a backpack, a backpack customer, they might be a Basecamp customer, they might have a Basecamp account and a Campfire account. How do we transition them to this new username and password and and sort of get them through that? And what I found was that um, I needed a way to quickly describe whole interaction flows. You know, they're going to land here, and then they're going to see this, and then there's going to be a button for that. And then that takes them over here. And then they're going to provide this username and password and if they authenticate okay then we're going to tell them this and then we're going to send an email you know what I mean like how how do you how do you map all that out and the thing is that if you if you have to draw wireframes when you're trying to figure out a whole flow of interaction like that man that is going to slow you down like crazy you know and you're not going to be kind of in the moment, standing in front of a whiteboard, improvising, and and saying, oh, how about this? Oh, what about that? Oh, let's try this instead. Oh, maybe you could go here. You know, this kind of quick, fast improvisational. This this is this is this is how design starts. You know. And if you if you have to slow down to build a wireframe every time you want to talk through an idea, you you don't get you don't get to cover enough surface area. You don't get to cover enough ground. You know. So um, so I came up with this sort of shorthand. Uh, I think I posted even a, a, a post on our blog about it at the time, and it was just called like a UI shorthand for for, for flows or something like that. And um, uh, and w- what I started to learn later on was that. This was a technique that I could use kind of any time I needed to think through what are the key, the real core questions of an interface. You know, visual styling is not really the fundamental of an interface. The, the core of an interface is the affordances, you know, the things that you can act with, the buttons, the fields, the navigation links, the tabs, those kind of things. How, how do I move around? What are the things that have to be on the screen? what are the things I need to see and what are the things I need to, to be able to, 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 to press or or activate or, or click on or whatever. And so um, the breadboard is just that. It's just the, the place you're on and then the affordances you see and then the connections between them. So it's the real essence of what an interface actually is. And it's extremely fast to just handwrite. And the thing that really surprised me was that as I started to show this to other people, what, what, what people really latched onto was the fact that when they would draw a wireframe or a mock-up and they gave it to another designer, they would always have to say, look, here's how I designed it, but, but don't design it like this. Like, like, you know, like I made it like this, but don't make it like that. Like, because, because there is, there is kind of no other way to express the idea other than to draw it, but now you've already drawn it and, and, and you don't want to box in your designers. You know what I mean? You, you want them to bring their creativity to the problem, and and, and you you, you want to leave that latitude for them. So, um, what, what the thing that's really great about the breadboards, and, and I call it a breadboard because it's an analogy to uh, the what's called a breadboard in in electronics prototyping. You know, you've got like a little sort of um, uh, circuit board that you can plug um, wires in and out of, and you can plug different components in and out of, and it's it's not like a finished piece of electronics that has an industrial design and a choice of materials and all of the buttons are are, are carefully placed, you know, so that it's a beautiful aesthetic hole. It's just kind of the wiring and the guts and the components connected together to see if I press the button, does the light turn on or not? You know, or if I turn the dial, does the speaker turn down or, or, or whatever it's supposed to do? So it, by analogy, it's the same thing. So what we can do now with a breadboard is, is we can we can work through a flow together, um, maybe a couple designers talking, and you've gotten to a place where you've actually figured out what needs to be in the design and what it has to do and whether it's going to be viable, whether it's going to get you from A to B as a process, but you haven't actually boxed yourself or anybody else into a particular two-dimensional layout. The button doesn't have to be on the left or on the right or above this or below that, you know. Um, so that's and uh, you know, if folks take a look at um, at, at the examples, you can just go to basecamp.com slash shapeup and you'll see in, uh, in, in the, the, the shaping section um, on finding the, the elements, um, there's a section on breadboarding. You'll see some visual examples there. It's, um, it's a great way to, to define the interface but without boxing people in.
0: The whole process really works to empower people at all levels to participate in solutions to a problem, allowing them to use their specific talents and really utilize each in a unique way. So many times we design a product process that resembles a factory. And, you know, that's where a lot of these agile methodologies actually come from. I mean, most of the product processes that we deploy today, they derive from Toyota's lean manufacturing methodologies that were developed between 1948 and like 1975
1: and then mastered into the 90s. But this process starts to move away from that product line thinking, which is something we probably need right now as more and more people are feeling increased stress and pressure at work. Now let's jump over to another important part of the Shape Up methodology, the process for handling tasks and estimates.
2: We don't wanna ask people to tell us things that they don't actually know. <laughs> and very often you don't actually know how long anything is gonna take. <laughs> you know, That's just reality, right? So if, if we start from a position where like you, you're supposed to report to me how long something's going to take, but, but you don't actually know we're then we're, we're, we're doomed from the beginning. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, um, so, so we have, we have, we have a very different approach on this and this is spelled out in part three of the book on building. There's, there's two aspects to the, this. The first thing is what we really ultimately trust as a sign of progress is running software. So So, uh, there's a chapter called get one piece done and what the teams do when they first take on the project is, uh, it's good to know by the way that, that when a team takes on projects, if you're used to a sort of agile world where people have tasks and they estimate the tasks, and then as soon as the cycle starts, they're supposed to pick a task and start working sort of this code, this code monkey thing, you know, um, that, uh, if that's the task universe in in real work, you know, if you just have to go do something as a side project or you go, you want to go redo part of your house or something, you know, work is, is more like a wave. It kind of gathers, you know, and it builds up power and then there's a point of sort of maximum power where it's cresting and crashing and then it recedes again. And if you look inside the six weeks, there's different types of work happening. So the first few days of the cycle, you're not going to see any progress at all. (laughs) <laughs> the teams need they need to actually figure out what the heck they're even looking at you know so they're they're going through the existing code they're looking at the existing systems that they have to interoperate with they're trying to interpret the 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 design guidance and figure out what it's going to mean for them so they're just getting oriented and trying to get their bearings you know but then within maybe the first week we actually expect to see a branch is started in github there's a beta server for us that means like um, there's a url that we can all go to that that has a uh, the new code running on it uh, that we can click on and uh we actually expect to see some meaningful little small piece of the new project running with a little bit of front end and a little bit of wire back end uh, wired together on a beta server in the first week so that's a real measure of progress. And, and the way that they do that is they, they identify a little piece of the project where they can, they don't have to do the per- pixel perfect visual design. They don't have to have everything perfectly figured out. But the designer can say, look, here's the main affordances. Here's the main things that need to be on the screen and puts them on the screen. And then the, the programmer wires those things up. So they actually do something when you click on them. And it's not the whole project. It's just one piece, but it's working. And then, if you get one little piece that you can identify separate from everything else where it has both front end and back end, now you've just, sh- you've just shrunk the universe of all the problems that you have to deal with in the future. The whole project just got a little bit smaller because the ultimate, un- the ultimate sort of certainty is something that's done, you know? And 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 now there's less uncertainty because that part of the project is actually working. Look, that's that that works. It's done, versus this other thing that a lot of teams do, where it's kind of like they're you know they're sort of designing an IKEA set and they're hoping that in the 11th hour it's all going to assemble, you know, and and it never it never does. So we're doing the opposite of that. We're assembling to get like a, a smaller section of it very very early. You know, so that's the principle of what we used to call, you know, getting real in the first book, and and um, it's the notion of scoping off a piece of front end and back end and, and actually building it and getting it done, and then and then picking another one. So in the book, we call that um, mapping out scopes. A scope is is a chunk of the work that has front end and back end that you can finish independent of the rest, and you can finish kind of soon. So that's that's the first part is actually showing real progress by building real stuff earlier in in, in the cycle. Then the other aspect is we do need to be able to, to sort of judge how the project is going and 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 what's the momentum and kind of how close are we and that sort of a thing. But but we we, we don't believe in story points, we don't believe in estimates because that's kind of all made-up stuff. So what, what do we actually believe in? Well, when when somebody's working on a project, whether even a small thing, like I need to go design an email template. There's a phase where you you know that you can do it. You know you, you know that that like I I know how to I can design a template. I've done it before, but you don't actually know what to do yet. You don't actually know what it should say. You don't really know what the copy is. Maybe you're not actually sure like where in the code email templates even get generated because you haven't worked on that in a while. You know. Mm-hmm. There's, so there's a lot of things that you you know that you have to figure out, but you're not actually producing work yet because there's a bunch of problem solving you have to do first. And we use this this visual picture of a hill to describe these two phases of work. So if you can kind of picture in your mind like kind of like a like a bell curve shape, you know, and the left side of the hill, the uphill side, it's not it's not the effort of pushing uphill. It's the problem solving of figuring out what do I even have to do to do this work.
1: So this seems like a good time for a quick break for a word from our sponsors.
2: So
0: we left off talking about how Basecamp handles tasks and estimates, which is essentially they don't from a planning perspective. Their teams write up tasks for themselves, but there isn't really a notion of estimates or points beyond estimating what solution could be developed within the time that
2: was bet.
1: So I asked Ryan how they represent this, because uh, it's, it's not in your classic burn up chart or, or you know calculating the points.
2: So I use the example in the book just to make it really relatable of if you're planning a dinner party, you, there's a point where you, you have the recipe and you, you have your ingredient list and you just all you have to do is go to the grocery store and buy the things and come home and put this in the oven for 30 minutes and you know, put this in that order and then you have dinner, right? And you know exact, you know exactly what to do. You can see every step all laid out in front of you. That's like standing at that's like standing at the top of the hill, but before you get to that point, you have to climb up the hill, which is like, what am I even gonna cook? How many people are gonna come? Is it gonna be vegetarian? You know what I mean? Like, and then and then if you make a decision between I'm gonna cook it, I'm gonna cook the uh, I'm gonna cook the curry versus I'm gonna do pasta versus we're gonna barbecue, that drastically changes maybe where you're going to shop, what's on your ingredient list, how much time you need to prep, right? But once once you figure those things out, then you then you can actually very clearly estimate because you actually have the full information. So it's the same thing with software. You 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 have this uphill phase to each scope of work inside the cycle where you're you're like, I don't really know yet, but I think I know where to go, but I still have things I need to figure out. And then you get to the top of the hill, you're like, okay, I know what needs to be on here, I've solved all the problems, it's just a matter of execution. So we actually allow teams to to communicate that gut feeling on each piece of work that is a meaningful chunk of the work. Like I said, we call them scopes, where they can actually draw a dot on a hill to show, I haven't, I haven't cracked this open at all. I've started to actually work on this. I've eliminated all the unknowns. You know, I, I'm at the top of the hill or I've got a lot of tasks left, but, but they're just, they're just execution versus I only have one or two things left and then I'm done. So they can actually drag a dot up and down this hill to show how they feel about the project, not in terms of the estimation or in terms of the quantity of work, but in terms of how known versus unknown it is. Because the knowns and the unknowns are the things that actually kill projects. You know, if, if, you're, if, you're at the, if you're at the end of the six weeks and you're supposed to be stopping and, and you have a, a few extra things that might, maybe you're gonna be five days late, you know, but it's all stuff that you've done before and you can see it end to end and edge to edge you know exactly what you have to do then then you push a little bit further and you get it done right but if you're at the end of the 6 weeks and you're supposed to ship and there's a design problem that you haven't solved yet or there's a technical thing some performance issue that you can't seem to get your you can't seem to fix it could be another year before you have the eureka or you could have the eureka tomorrow in the shower who knows right so an open problem is totally, has a totally different nature and a totally different risk to it. And the other thing, too, is that as teams capture the tasks that they, that they need to do, there's this crazy thing where we we, we think that the way it's going to go is the team is going to collect a bunch of tasks, and then they're going to finish those tasks. So there's going to be like the task is gonna, the task list is going to get longer, and then as they get closer to being done, the list is going to get shorter you know, but in reality, it's actually the opposite. When you don't quite know what you have to do, your task list has a few big things on it. You know, write the copy, hook the email up into the email sender mechanism, you know, design the template. And then, then you crack open the system and you realize that there's a million things that you actually have to do that you didn't know you had to do. Like, oh, the way that we send emails doesn't work for this case because we actually have to send a PDF attachment and the attachment system is over here and this other thing and blah, 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 right? So what happens is actually the more you learn about the work you have to do, that's actually where your to-do list actually grows. So very often, the closer you get to finishing work, the more items you actually have to do, but it's because you figured out what you actually have to do. <laughs> so it goes, it goes from, from, from cook dinner to a million little subtasks. You know, chop the beans, but before you chop the beans, you have to move the carrots out of the way because the carrots were in the way. And then, you know what I mean? Like, there's these tiny little subtasks that have to happen. So very often, very often, the, the to do list is actually longest when the pro when the when the work is almost done because there's all these little things you figured out you have to do, and then you're just kind of knocking them out. So if if we if we tried to look at the quantity of work, it's not a, it's not at all an indicator of where we stand. But if we know I, I've got I've got open unsolved problems versus I actually just know what to do, that is a much more reliable indicator of is this thing actually going to get done or not.
0: It's an interesting solution for sure. Um, okay, let's talk a little bit more about everyone's favorite or probably least favorite topic, which is <laughs> shutting down work that doesn't finish on time.
1: I really felt like this was the glue that held the whole strategy together. Without this impending doom, so to speak, these projects, they can drag on forever. Like, you know, most projects do. Yeah, I've definitely been a part of many projects where that was the case. <laughs> anyway, here's Ryan.
2: I want to point out it doesn't even go back into a queue. <laughs> it's 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 even worse than that. It's a very dire consequence. So uh, we I, in the book, I call it the circuit breaker. And it's actually a risk management technique. The notion is that Look, if you bet six weeks on something, because you think something is worth six weeks of risk, and, and then it turns out to take longer than that, it doesn't make any sense at all to spend 12 weeks on something that you bet six weeks on. It's, that's, a, that's a bad deal. It, it, for a bet to be a bet, it needs to meet some basic logical criteria. You know You need to have a limited, controlled downside. If you're sitting at a poker table, you choose how many chips you put in, you know, the number of chips that you put in, you don't push some chips forward and then they start multiplying on you. (laughs) You know what I mean? You, you, you make a judgment of how much you're willing to risk. And then that's the bet that you make. Right. But in a lot of software projects, you say, we want to spend six weeks on this and we want it to ship after six weeks or whatever the number is. And then it starts to take 10 weeks, and it starts to take 12 weeks, and it starts to take 18 weeks. And for some reason, you're still doing it, even though you didn't bet that much time. What is going on there? It doesn't make any sense, right? And there's a certain amount of payoff that we had in mind when we said this thing is worth six weeks of our time right now. But who knows what else has come up in the course of that six weeks? You know, you might be in week three of the six week thing that's getting built, and you might have. A crisis come up where there's something customers are starting to tell you about, and you're like, "Oh man, we have to address that in the next cycle, right?" Or you might have the most brilliant idea for the new thing that you're going to do. That's a huge opportunity. Like, "Oh man, that's going to be fantastic. That's definitely the thing we have to do next cycle, right?" So why should that? thing, that new thing that you just realized you should do that's important, that's timely, that's contextual, that's based on what's actually going on in the business right now, why should that thing have to wait? Because the other thing that you only thought was worth six weeks is starting to take 12 weeks.
1: And then if someone thinks that the work that got cut deserves just a little bit more time, they pitch it again to the executive team and take a new bet out on that work. So that's
0: pretty much it. I mean, if, if you want to read the full book, which you should, you should definitely read it. It's a great one. Head on over to basecamp.com slash shape up and you could read
1: through the full process in greater detail. And if you're wondering if this is the right process for you and your team, there's an app
2: for that. Is there really? No, no I'm just kidding. <laughs> but there is an email. If people feel like there's open questions about how does this apply to me? There's an email address at the end of the book, shapeup@basecamp.com. Just write us an email. I've been responding to everyone and it's been awesome to talk people through, oh, if you're three people do this, if you're if you're a hundred people do that, you know, because we have enough sort of feedback from people of different sizes to answer those questions now. So I just want to mention that that, that, that people can reach out and do that.
0: That's amazing. I mean, who wouldn't want to take advantage of that opportunity? But next week here on Rocket Chip, we're actually going to dive into the topic
1: Of product led growth. Thank you so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. It's your support that keeps the show going. Rocketship.fm is now part of the Podglomerate Network. If you want to learn more about the other shows on the Podglomerate Network, go to thepodglomerate.com.
0: Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product people. If you go to productcollective.com, you could check out live video interviews, sign up for our newsletter, be a part of our Slack group with over 6,000 product people. Just check it out
2: at productcollective.com.